1: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought
0: in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a
1: thing Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless 100 to get 30 30 how to get 30 how to get 20 20, 20 how to get 20 20 how to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so
0: give it a try at mintmobile.com switch
3: 45 dollars upfront for three months plus taxes and fees Promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com
0: hi I'm Daniel founder of pretty litter
3: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
4: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist
1: So one quick thing before we start the episode. Have you visited the art store yet? Be sure to visit unmistakableart.com and check out our new t-shirts and make an unmistakable fashion statement. Now let's get to the episode. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, accidental creative founder Todd Henry returns to the show to discuss rooting your work in something that truly matters and harnessing the power of your authentic voice. Todd, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join
2: us. Thanks, Srini. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah. So you and I go way back. I mean, you were a guest twice on our show when we were called uh, Blogcast FM. And part of what I've always loved about your work is that you do an amazing job blending practical and inspirational advice together. And so you know, when I knew you had a new book coming out, I figured this was a no-brainer because you absolutely rocked the mic last time. So no pressure at all. Uh, (laughs)
2: None, none whatsoever. (laughs) But on
1: that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your your journey, your story, your background, and how that has led to this book and all the work that you do?
2: Yeah, so uh, it's so encouraging to hear you say that about the practical plus inspirational element of it because really, I mean, I am a practitioner at heart. I mean, that's really where most of my, writing and my work and my consulting and the work I do with creatives and with teams comes from, it's just the fact that, I mean, I, I have been in those shoes and I understand what it feels like to have to create on demand every day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my background is in creative services. So leading creative teams and um, you know, helping uh people overcome some of those hurdles and roadblocks that um that that you inevitably get into. And also working with people who don't consider themselves creatives, but they mm-hmm. but they are because they have to solve problems every day. And so really just that that was kind of the formative um uh you know, sort of formative uh stage of my life where I realized, wow, this is a real problem. You know, mm-hmm. people have to go to work, they have to solve problems, they have to make it up as they go, whether they're writers, designers, artists, you know, managers, whatever. Um and, uh, that, that really was kind of the root of it. And, 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 out of that really sort of came this realization that there are a lot of people who talk about being creative or talk people who talk about doing great work, people who talk about building a body of work they can be proud of. Um, but it's all theory, it's all, you know, 50,000 foot inspirational type stuff. But if you don't root that in action, mm-hmm. then inspiration has a shelf life. Um, if you don't act upon that inspiration. And so, um, you know, I, I, Uh, realized about a decade ago that there was a real need for this conversation in the create on demand world. And so started a podcast called The Accidental Creative Um, that very quickly turned into uh, a business and a consultancy. And now for the last several years, I've been writing books and traveling and working with uh, a ton of companies and spending a lot of time on the road, kind of, you know, in the trenches and on the ground, working with people and helping them do better work. Mm.
1: You know, I I want to go back uh, probably even further than you and I have gone in our our previous conversations to looking back at, you know, uh, adolescence, early childhood, and some of the formative experiences and, you know, what you might look at as inflection points in your life that ultimately led you down the path that you went down.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> so uh you know, unlike a lot of people I grew up um I guess you could you could almost call it in the middle of nowhere because it really was in the middle of nowhere. I grew up in a very rural area. Um, and you're know, surrounded by farms. We were not farmers, but we were surrounded by farms. And, uh, you know, I think it's funny because I think when, when I tell my friends that, you know, I live in the city now and, you know, I'm obviously in you know, 50 cities a year, 50 plus cities a year. And I tell my friends that, and they say, Oh my gosh, it must've been terrible, you know, being in the middle of it. And I'm like, no, it was great because, you know, every day we woke up and we thought, what are we going to do today? You know, let's just make it up. And we would go on these amazing five mile or seven mile or 10 mile bike rides just out into the literally even more into the middle of nowhere. Right. Uh, and and we were just experimenting. I remember one summer, a friend of a friend of mine who lived, um, across the field from me uh we just we, we thought you know hey let's let's make a uh let's make a helicopter <laughs> out <laughs> of out of lawnmower parts right and so uh-huh. we spent like the summer strategizing and figuring out what does this look like you know how do we do this and so those are just the kind of things we did because we had to kind of make it up and it's funny because i look back now and i realize that was such that space and that freedom and that play and that exploration and that ability to not be distracted you know uh, one of the things we wrestle with 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 our kids today is they're just so distracted because there's so many options. There's so many things going on all the time. They're so busy. Mm. And so we're trying to create that with our kids, that that sense of space. And no, we're just not going to have something going on today. We're just going to create space and let you guys play. Because for me, I think that was in many ways kind of the fertile soil in which my love of creativity and my love of innovation, my love of um, of thought and art and all these things uh, sort of were planted, the seeds of that were planted. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful now that I had that experience growing
1: up. Hmm. Did you have, uh, influences of mass media, television, and, and the kinds of things that most of us are exposed to, uh, as a part of your upbringing? And if you didn't, how has that influenced and shaped the way you do your work and the way you see the world now?
2: so I did but it was very different okay so I'm in my early 40s I'm not sure I'm not sure how old you are I'm 37 I'm early, okay so we're, we're you know similar I guess similar generation and uh you know when I when I was growing up um you know we really where we lived we didn't have cable television for a significant amount of uh time you know significant period of when I was I was growing up and so if we wanted to change the channel we had to you know first of all we had to uh you know, often get up and walk over to the tv and change the channel but but secondly we had this this thing that sat on top of the television it was called a Rotor and you had to go over to the rotor and you had to turn this knob that would point in, it was like a compass. It had north, south, east, west. You would point the antenna in the direction of the city that you wanted to get the signal from, right? Uh, and so if we wanted to listen, you know, watch channel seven, we had to point the antenna toward Dayton. If we wanted to, get, you know, watch channel four, we had to point the antenna toward Columbus. as so you would go up and you would turn it, it would go click, click. Click, 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 click. And the antenna would turn, and slowly the signal would get better. Um, and it's kind of funny, you know. It's sort of, in, in some ways, it almost seems like a, a different world today. But um, you know, I think there is a tremendous amount of um, freedom that comes from limited options. I mm-hmm. think that uh, we become paralyzed by too much choice. We become paralyzed by having too many options in our life, too much uh, potential for busyness, and. You know, so I think one of the things that I've never struggled with is making decisions because you know, I'm used to having limited options and I'm used to running with the best option available. And you know, I was never sort of overwhelmed with or paralyzed by unlimited options. And so in creative work and writing and all of that, like one of the things I think that's characterized my work is that I'm, I'm pretty doggone decisive. I'll mm-hmm. just make a decision to run with it because I know I can redirect, I can make something out of whatever I choose to do. And you know, that word decide comes from the root word to cut off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think many of us are afraid to, to cut off options because we're afraid we're going to miss out on something. But if we if we don't, then we're not going to we're never going to build a substantive body of work or one that's precise and consonant and refined. Uh, and so I, I really think that in many ways, sort of that upbringing I had um, in, in many ways, I think, sort of forged that in me in mm-hmm. some way, that that willingness and that ability to be decisive Hmm.
1: You know, it's interesting as as I'm listening to you say that I I think back to a conversation we had with uh, a guy named Jim Bunch, you know, we were talking about designing environments for optimal performance and creativity. And he posed a question to me, which I have repeated a handful of times on the show, because it seems so relevant to me said, you know, what if you said no to everything that wasn't on track with your bigger purpose? And I thought, I've thought a lot about that over the last several months because I've been blocking Facebook for four hours at a time since you know I'm writing a book, right. uh, you know, and I, I've embraced pen and paper wholeheartedly for a very long time. In fact, we just had Eric Fabian here, who was uh, the director of brand and PR for Moleskin, mm-hmm. and it, you know, I just I think about you know analog and slowing down and the importance of all that in this increasingly busy world. When I hear you talk about some of these things and. I can tell from your writing that you're incredibly decisive because I can just, tell you know, the structure to it is so like there's so much actionable stuff in it. I'm like, yeah, somebody who's incredibly decisive is the only person who could come up with this. Um, you know, what, what I'm interested in is, you know, you talk about this idea for, for space and, and freedom uh, to play, and I'm wondering how we start to create that in our lives.
2: Well, I, I think it is, a. this is not going to be groundbreaking to anyone listening <laughs> to this, but I, th- I think it's a matter of discipline. Mm. You know, I, th- I think um, to, to go back to the decisive thing, and it plays into this question, uh, I think that sometimes we think when we encounter a decisive person, that decisiveness is, is sourced in certainty. Mm-hmm. That they're decisive because they know for sure this is the right direction. And That is not the case. You know, I, I think um, we have sometimes we have to be decisive in the face of uncertainty. And that is really that's what art is. Art is making is being decisive in the midst of your uncertainty, even when you're not certain, but being clear, mm-hmm. even in the midst of your uncertainty. And that's what art is, is being clear and having a point of view and being constant, being precise, being decisive. And I think we have to do the same thing with with our time. We have to be decisive about how we're going to set our priorities and we have to allocate our finite resources to those priorities. We have to be decisive about that. We can't do everything. If you're saying yes to everything, you're saying yes to nothing. Mm -hmm. You have to be decisive, which means choose those handful of things that are absolutely important to you and then, (gasps) surprise, surprise, (laughs) allocate your finite focus. Assets, time, and energy against those things. Those are our four finite resources that we have at our disposal. Your focus is how you define your problems. Uh-huh. Um, so allocate your fo- your finite focus against those important things. Your assets; these are physical resources. You know, we all have physical, uh, you know, finite physical resources. So allocate those uh, according to that. Your time, which is what we're talking about here, you know, allocate time to just focusing on and spending energy against those important problems and finally your energy which is making sure that you're preparing yourself to be able to actually do the work when you're in that time but we have to be decisive in that way we have to you know we have to say no to things Mm -hmm. if we want to say yes to something. Uh, Otherwise we will never build a body of work. We can be proud of we'll, we'll we'll spend our life building somebody else's body of work. We'll spend our life doing work that doesn't represent us, but represents everybody else's whims, objectives, and priorities.
1: Hmm. So this ability to be decisive in the face of uncertainty, do you think that that is something that can be cultivated or do you think it's inherently built into some people?
2: Well, I, th- I think it can certainly be cultivated. I think, um, you know, just like, uh, you know, bravery is a discipline. It's not a trait. I think people think that bravery is something that's inherent in a lot of people. Um, I think most brave people that you talk to would say, no, this isn't baked into me. This is something I choose. It's a discipline. Bravery is a discipline. I think decisiveness is a discipline as well, but it's not the same thing as being reactive. And I think sometimes we say, Oh, be decisive. That means just make a decision, just go with it. Just, you know, what no, it's not the same thing. It means understanding the context, looking at it and making the best decision you can with the information you have available. Sometimes the best decision, by the way, is I'm going to defer a decision, but you're doing that purposefully. You're not doing it by default. You're doing that by design. And, and there are times for that, by the way. Sometimes, you know, the best information is going to come in a day and you can defer your decision for a day and that's fine. Um, but what you don't want to do is live a life of uh, indecisiveness by default because you're afraid to make a decision because you're afraid you're going to get the wrong you're going to make the wrong one. And that's where many people live. I, I see so many young entrepreneurs, artists, creatives, managers inside of organizations who just push everything off until the last possible minute because they're so afraid they're going to mess up. Right. And when that happens, the the chaos trickles down into every corner of your life. So I would say that that decisiveness is a discipline. It's a muscle that we flex. And over the course of time, we learn that making the wrong decision is not the worst thing in the world all the time. You know, uh-huh. sometimes there are consequences, well, there are always consequences when we make a wrong decision, but we can almost always redirect as long as we're being purposeful and we're making the best decision we can with the information available. So yes, it is a discipline. Um, I would encourage people listening I mean, just to get to the tactical thing. Look at your life, look at your business, look at the work that you're doing and ask yourself, where in my life right now am I living under the fog of indecisiveness? Where in my life am I pushing off Um, action because I'm waiting for things to become more certain. The reality is things are very rarely going to become more certain. You have to act with the best information you have and you can't afford to be unclear when you're uncertain. You have to act with clarity and precision, even in the face of the uncertainty. Wow.
1: Wow. Um, well, let's do this. Let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, you know, for, for everybody listening, I'll link up Todd's previous interviews. I mean, you've written two books, accidental creative and die empty, both phenomenal by the way. And on Thank my you. shelf. Uh, what I'd like to get to is kind of how the experiences of your life and your career, uh, in the threads of your own body of work have led to this whole new idea of louder than words and developing a voice.
2: Yeah. Uh, so I think voice is everything. Uh-huh. Srini, I really do. I think that um, your voice isn't, isn't just what you say. It's how you're heard. It's how other people receive you. And your voice is what allows you to take what it is that you care about and put it out there into the world in the way that it's consumable by others. That other people can interact with your ideas and your insights and your passions and, and your work uh, and ultimately to influence other people. So you can be the best designer in the world. You can be the best artist in the world. You can have the best idea in the world, build a world changing business but if your voice isn't refined, if it's not authentic, if it's not powerful, if it's not compelling, nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to pay attention to what you're doing. Uh-huh. So the key I have discovered, and you, know, you mentioned my earlier books, you know, The Axon Creative is about organizing your work. Die Empty is about making sure that you're doing the right work, that you're building you know, a, a body of work that is around the right things. And Louder Than Words really is about then what do you do? How do you get that out into the world? How do you make your work resonate with people? Um, attention for your work is not a birthright. You, know, you have to earn attention for your work. And the way you do that is by harnessing the power of an, of an authentic voice, one that's rooted in what you care about, one that has a compelling vision that's consonant, that's precise, and one that is founded upon a sense of mastery of your craft or mastery of your platform so that you can then enact that work or that voice in the way that it's going to resonate with other people. Wow.
1: Okay, so this is why I love your work because you give us this amazing framework and you know last time with Die Empty, what we did was we dissected the entire framework step by step. So if it's possible, you know, I'd like to go through this idea of developing a voice that resonates. I mean, authentic at this point is such an overused buzzword and I think it he, somebody even said that in, in the in the you know, the little one sheet that they send with the book. Somebody wrote that in there I was like, right, right. "Okay, cool, at least he acknowledged that." Um, yeah. So I, I'd like to talk about this in in more depth and talk about, you know, developing a voice that resonates, mastery you you know, all the components that go
2: into this, like the entire framework. Absolutely, love to. Um, and, and just to address the authenticity thing, I agree with you. I think it is a completely overused phrase and I, I think it's misappropriated, that mm-hmm. word is in some some cases. And um, I... Uh, in the book, I actually don't refer to authenticity in the same way I think that many people refer to authenticity. They, they tend to think it's um, the same thing as transparency. Mm-hmm. Just uh, oh, you know, I'm just going to say what I want, and if you like me, you do; if you don't like me, you don't, and that's your problem because I'm just being authentic. And right. listen, if that's your path, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. Just don't expect anybody to pay attention to what you're doing, right? Because <laughs> uh, it's it's possible they may you uh-huh. you may you may find your your audience doing that. That's great, but what that mindset lacks is a, is a a sense of empathy. It lacks Mm. a sense of vision or understanding of the impact you want your work to make. I hope that you, Srini, are not just screaming into the wilderness. I hope that your desire is to somehow impact and mobilize the people that you're reaching in some way, you know, and to, and to make their lives better in some capacity. And I know that's my goal with my work is Mm. to influence and make people's lives better. So to do that, You you can't just scream into the wilderness. You have to have a sense of who you're trying to reach and how you want to reach them. So authenticity, as I define it, is rooting your work in something that matters to you and actually having skin in the game. Actually letting people see that you care about what it is you're talking about, that this isn't just some sort of external fabricated shell for you. But instead, when we talk about your authentic voice, that means that it's coming from a deep well of genuine concern, genuine care that you've put skin in the game and people can see that because it's founded upon you, not some fabrication of you. When we talk about personal branding, that's really often what we, what we mean. And I know you've explored this a lot in, in, in your own work, right? Um, we tend to talk about personal branding, you know, building some sort of external shell that's, that's, you know, going to make us look good to the world. And, you know, how do we position ourselves and all these kinds of words, these phrases that we use, and we use them in business, we use them in, you know, personal branding and all of this. But what's often lacking from that conversation is, is this work really founded upon something you care about? Mm -hmm. You know, because ultimately if it's not, then it's going to crumble, it's going to be hollow. So, Kind of the three, just to kind of give an overview of that framework, um, I can kind of give you a a sense of what that is and then we can dive a little more deeply into it. Yeah, Um, The first element of it is is identity. Mm -hmm. And identity is about knowing who you are. It's about understanding what you care about, when you're at your best, when people tend to resonate with you and understanding that and then learning to apply that in the course of your work so that your work is more consistently uh, compelling and, and resonant with your audience, you know, and again, this is a discipline. This is not Um, just a decision that you make one day. Oh, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to root my work in identity. And from, you know, no, you have to pay attention to the context of your work. You have to pay attention to the clues in your environment. When are you most resonant? When are the people responding? Well, what do other people have to say about your work? What do you care about? What are the principles you're going to go to the map for every time? Uh You know, Because you care so deeply about them. These are the core elements of identity and who you are. And really that's what identity is about is who are you, you know, at the end of the day Um, and how are you going to put that out into the world for other people? Um, And then the second element of this resonant voice matrix um, that I call the voice engine is vision. And vision is kind of like what we talked about before. It's about ensuring that you understand your audience, making sure you understand the impact that you want to have with your work. So cultivating empathy, cultivating a sense of who you're trying to reach. Um, And and by the way, a lot of people try to reach demographics with their work. They try to reach groups of people. Uh And I found that often falls flat because the work lacks precision. If you're trying to reach everybody or you're trying to reach a large group of people, you're probably not going to reach anyone. And I find that it helps when you're crafting your work to think very very precisely about who you're trying to reach each of my three books has been written to one specific person mm-hmm. one specific per- it's been a different person for for each book um, it's it's not you by the way you <laughs> <or something. Yeah. laughs> uh, but one specific person and I wrote the book as if they were sitting across the table from me and I was writing it to them and as a result a lot of people tell me that they feel like the book was written to them specifically uh-huh. to them. And I said, well, it wasn't you, but because I was writing to one person, it probably feels like I was writing to you because I'm making an argument as if I'm writing to one person mm-hmm. you know, who's, who's dealing with these things that they're dealing with. So that's kind of what vision is comprised of. You know, again, people think that art is, I'm just going to make it for me. And if other people like it, that's great. But I think that's kind of a short sighted way to think about our work. I think we also have to understand who we're trying to reach and the impact we're trying to achieve. And then that final element, as I mentioned before, is mastery. And really, this is about understanding what skills you're going to need in order to get you where you want to go with your work. So it's about developing a practice, developing a sense of craft, making sure you're honing your craft and building daily disciplines into your life to hone your craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some people think that. Well, if if I'm I'm passionate about it and have a vision, it should just be easy. I'll just put it out there. Well, no, because if you lack mastery, you're not going to be compelling. You're not going to be credible. So you have to develop a sense of mastery of your craft, but also a sense of a mastery of timing Mm -hmm. because you can have the best idea in the world and you can put it out there at the wrong time or in the wrong way in the wrong context and nobody's going to resonate with it as well. And and one of the arguments um, that people have is, well, that's that's not authenticity. If you're thinking about your audience and how you're going to reach them, and you're thinking about uh, you know timing and when you put it out, that's not you know authenticity. That's just marketing. Well, who said that marketing can't be authentic? Right? Who said taking what you do, your work, to the market? cannot be authentic. It is, of course, if you're rooting it in something you care about and it's coming from a genuine sense of identity and your goal is to impact people. Well, of course, I want to put it out there in the way people are going to reach it, you know, that people are going to be able to connect with it and resonate with it. I mean, I'm not going to put on a show at three in the morning and say, well, why didn't anybody show up to my show? You know, I mean, it's a great show. We put, you know, did throughout all the bells and whistles and did the great, you know, nobody's going to show up because everybody's asleep, right? Terrible timing. And the same thing applies if we want other people to resonate with our work we have to understand you know what kind of timing is gonna uh make it such that other people can resonate with it and that's just one example of many types of skills that we need to develop but so those those are kind of the three core elements or identity vision and mastery and they create this kind of virtuous upward cycle uh in in our lives in our work and ultimately anybody whose voice resonates they have all three of those present in some capacity in their work Uh uh-huh
1: You know, it's interesting, like, I know why I resonated with this book so much, because it describes my own journey and my own process in so many ways, like the evolution Mm -hmm. from broadcast FM to being unmistakable creative. And I think maybe the biggest part of that, you know, we talk about identity, I said, you know, there's a certain point, which I stopped seeing myself as a marketer or a blogger, and I started to view myself as an artist. And that fundamentally changed everything about my work, it changed, you know, my vision, it changed my my commitment to mastery. Uh, It just changed the way I approached my work. It, It, you know, it, like if you look at our about page, I think it's very clear what our vision is. We say, you know, this is a, you know, this is a place for people with a pathological inability to accept the status quo. <laughs> and we've drawn
2: that line. It's like, if that's not you, we're probably not for you. Right, absolutely. Well, and and that, you know, Blogcast FM was an important part of your journey, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh yeah, I mean, it's where know, I honed my skills as an interviewer, for sure. Absolutely, and Unmistakable Creative um, is without... Uh, you know, without a doubt is a, a huge inflection point in your journey. But here's the thing I think people often overlook. I mean, you, you did not come out of the womb as, you know, unmistakable <laughs> creative, right? I mean, no, you had we came out of the process. womb
1: as interviews with up and coming bloggers. Right. Another absolutely. Block.
2: You know, and, and that's great and that's important and that's significant. It's an important part of your journey because it's how you developed and you honed your mm. voice. And so I think sometimes people think they use this phrase, find your voice. And I was yeah. very careful to scrub that language out of everywhere in the book, anywhere that it accidentally uh, snuck into the the language, I scrubbed it out as I was writing it because I wanted to focus on developing your voice. Your voice isn't something that you go one day and you you dig in a little pile of, of rubble and you pull it out and you say, oh, good, here it is. I found my voice. And forever yeah. and always, I will know my voice. You know, um, That's not the way it is. And I think that's a great myth of our age is that people discover their voice and then they go on and create great work. The reality is that most people, even brilliant top of their game professionals, people who are out there, household names, are constantly in the process of refining and developing their voice, and it's a lifelong journey. You're going to be discovering things about yourself for many, many years to come, and probably for you, unmistakable is not the last stepping stone on that journey, right? But it's a significant one yeah. um, for you because you've you've uncovered something. That a pattern has been formed mm-hmm. through persistence, through sweat, through effort, through excavation, and suddenly, boom, a pattern is formed, and you learn something about yourself, and it creates a, a giant inflection point or breakthrough in your work. But those kinds of things only happen if we're persistent and we work and we excavate and we pay attention to the clues over the course of time. The, mm-hmm. the, the danger is when we become fossilized. I mean, how sad would it have been, Srini, if five years ago you had said, okay, well, blogcast, this is it. How do I, how do I continue to maximize this platform? How do yeah. I continue to make this the best? Because this is who I am. I've discovered my voice, right? I found my voice. This is who I am. And that would have been profoundly sad. The world would have missed out on some on some great stuff. And And so we all have to embrace that ethic of continual growth, uh, continual uh, pursuit of great work, you know, not settling medias ochris, not settling for mediocrity halfway up the rugged mountain, Mm -hmm. but instead continuing to push up the mountain, continuing to pursue great work and develop our voice over the course of time.
4: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: You know, it's interesting to hear you say that. There's no way I could have known I was going to end up here when I started. Um, It's a process that's revealed it like the voice revealed itself to me over time. And like you said, it's Mm -hmm. something that reveals more and more every day. You know, I talk about the the concept of being unmistakable. I said, you know, it's shedding layer after layer after layer after layer. And that never ends. I realized you're constantly trying to get to sort of this core To figure out what it is that makes you unmistakable. And that's, like you said, it's a lifetime thing. You know, you mentioned the idea of a long journey. And one of the things that you talked about in the book is this idea of dealing with false narratives. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's two questions that arise uh, for me from that in sort of the path from, you know, starting accidental creative to creating this book and to getting to do all this amazing work with all these fascinating people. uh, Have there been any rock bottom moments in your own life and how have you navigated out of them? And how do we deal with false narratives and change them so that we can do our best work? So those are like five questions in my mind. Sorry.
2: <laughs> um, well, the answer to your question is yeah. I mean, of course. There have been some, some terrible moments. Um, moments of self-doubt. Moments of you know, having destroyed something that I made that took me a lot of time to, to make and to build, but not destroying it on purpose. I mean, there's yeah. creative destruction. And then there's, you know, I made a mistake and I destroyed everything I'd been working for. Um, I remember one moment in, it was probably about 2006. Um, you know, this was, so I, I started the podcast in 2005, uh, which, you know, was obviously right on the cusp of podcasting kind of becoming a thing, which is kind of cool. You know, but looking <laughs> yeah. back, I remember at the time I was thinking, oh, I'm so late to the game on this podcasting yeah. thing. You know, but it was like so early in the game, obviously, relatively speaking. Right. And, um, you know, I, I had, you know, we built a website and there was all this stuff happening and had been you know, featured in a couple of major magazines. And I was getting calls from, you know, all of these people from, from all over the country, from these great companies asking me to come in and do some consulting work. And it was it was really remarkable um, you know, what had sort of happened. But I remember one night I, you know, at the time we were very, it was a very, very young, um, you know, uh, initiative. And I was doing a lot of work myself that I probably shouldn't have been doing, um, mm-hmm. which is a lesson you know, I kind of have learned over time. And made a couple of mistakes and and completely destroyed, um, basically destroyed the the back end of our website, the database, um, and and basically a way that it could not be repaired. And I remember I came out of, I was working in a little home office at the time. I remember coming out and sitting down in the living room and my wife could tell something was going on. And she said, what's going on? What's the matter? And I said, I have just destroyed three years of work basically have completely destroyed it. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, it was, I mean, I just had that pit in my stomach, like maybe this is it. Maybe this is the end. Maybe I just need to give up. Maybe, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I sat there wallowing in self pity for about, you know, 15, 20 minutes. And she just kind of looked at me and said, I'm really sorry this happened to you. Um, but maybe this is an opportunity for you. And I remember that in that moment, I remember having these sort of two conflicting uh, feelings in my my gut, one of which was to, like, jump up and start shouting words that were not too kind, right? Yeah. Uh, and then this – because I was just – I was angry at what had happened. I was angry at myself. Um and the other one was just this deep sense of love and sense of connectedness at this woman who knew me so well and knew, um, you know, my passions and knew what I was really, what I was really going through and what I was really about. Um, and it heard me talk about how passionate I am about this initiative. And so I got up and I went back in it was like 11 o'clock at night. And I remember I worked until like four, four 30 in the morning and, um, and got everything back online, fixed everything somehow, somehow it was amazing. And there's all kinds of weird sort of self healing stuff that happened with the site as I was working on it. I don't know if the the server was like repairing from a backup or so. I don't know what happened, but somehow everything came back online so that, you know, now looking back, it seems like, oh, your website crashed. Big deal. But right. at the moment, that was a that was a moment of of real decision for me where I, I had to, to choose. Am I going to go on with this? Am I going to make this into something uh, or am I going to give up? Yeah. And at that moment, the only thing that kept me going was my drive, my passion for the work I was doing and the impact I wanted to have. Um, and that was, by the way, the beginning of another inflection point for for me that eventually led to the first book deal in 2009 and a lot of other things. And it's funny now looking back on it, I can't believe I would ever in a million years have let something as silly as that stand in the way of all this this stuff that I get to do now um, and have been doing now for you know quite quite a few years. Um, so that's one, one moment, um, just in, in, in the recent past, but I would say another one was quite frankly, when I was writing this new book, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was really wrestling through with this, with regard to narratives, um, and some of these things that you, that you, you brought up, uh, really wrestling through, um, these, these narratives in my head about, you know, how are people going to receive this? How are people going to read this? How are people going to like this? Are they going to like it? Are they not going to like it? People have expectations of you. You know, you've had two books. One of them was, was, you know, the last one was pretty well acclaimed. The first one sold a ton of copies, you know, um, people have these expectations of you and is this book going to meet their expectations? And you know, there were, there were times when I had to write on a post-it note, stop listening to the voices and Mm. put it on my monitor, Um, not because I'm, you know, literally hearing voices in my head, but because I recognize that it's so easy to fall into this place where you're shaping your work according to the expectations of others and what you think they're going to want from you rather than what it is your intuition is telling you. And it's very different, by the way, to shape your work according to what you think is going to connect and resonate with an audience, Mm -hmm. but it's still sourced in your intuition. It's sourced in your sense of who you are versus shaping and fabricating your work from the exterior based solely upon what you think is going to appease these imaginary people that you're trying to appease. Right. And so I wrote things in this new book. Um, and after I wrote them, the thought in my head was, well, there goes a one-star Amazon review. Right. (laughs) Um, But you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to say, you know what, I'm going to do what my intuition says and I'm going to do it in a way that I'm going to reach my intended audience knowing that it's also going to be polarizing, Mm -hmm. that other people are not going to like it. But that's okay because I'm not trying to reach everybody. I'm trying to reach this person with what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So those were pretty dark times as well, Um, just navigating. As you know, you're right in the middle of writing a book right now. You know how dark that can be when you're on your own. No matter, you know, no matter what Anybody thinks I me mean, writing is a solo sport. I know you're working with, you know, a coach and you have an editor and, you know, I have an editor and my agent helps me, you know, think through things. But at the end of the day, it's me with my butt in a chair staring at a monitor and saying, what do I have to offer of value to other people? Um, and that's a very, that can be a very lonely place and a very, um, a place of a lot of self doubt, I think mm. for most writers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. You know, it's interesting, like hearing you talk about rock bottom moments, you know, you and I exchanged emails and I, I actually haven't told anybody this on the show. I actually mentioned that we almost quit in, in December of 2014. But what I didn't tell anybody who's listening is that, um, you know, we, we had had this blowout success of an event the year before. And when I saw that, you know, this thing that I had built, this thing that I had called in every favor I'd had for in the last five years and was amazing the year before was not going to happen. I mean, it just sent me into a tailspin. Mm. Um, I like December was probably the worst month of my entire life. I was like, I want this to end. And I remember thinking, I'm like, I'm done. Like it's over. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And it's interesting. I was like, so why do you keep going? I'm like, because I don't know what else to do for the time being. And two months later, Stephanie says, Hey, I found your writing. We want you to write a book. Yeah. You know, funny how that works.
2: It is funny how that works. And, you know, I think people think that, um, You know, it is a linear path Mm -hmm. to any, any measure of success that we experience. It's just a consistent uphill climb. And it's not, and it's not for people, by the way, who have achieved success. You know, if you talk to people who are very successful, they live with a tremendous amount of self doubt. Mm -hmm. Um, The more successful you become the easier it is to preserve and protect, to circle the wagons and start protecting what you've already got instead of continuing to take new ground. In some ways, it's easier at the beginning when you're first trying to forge your your name because well, you really have nothing to lose in, right, in so right. many ways. But then once you have something to protect, it gets, it gets more difficult. Um, it's easier to just circle the wagons. And yeah. so that's, you know, and I, I talked a lot about the importance of having relationships in your life and having other people around. That's why it's so important to have people um, the, who who will tell you the truth, people who will speak truth to you. And sometimes that truth is what you want to hear. Like, uh-huh. Hey, you're great. Go do this. You're, it's amazing. Keep doing it. And sometimes that truth are, is stuff that you don't want to hear, but that you need to hear. Yeah. And you have to be willing to accept that. Like, Hey, why are you doing this? This is not you. This is not who you are. This is not consistent with what you say you want to accomplish in this world or your body of work. Why are you doing this? It makes no sense. We need people like that around us. I needed my wife that night. Honestly, if I had been on my own and hadn't had somebody there to empathize with me and then kick me in the rear um, I I may have given up Mm -hmm. and I can't even fathom serene i would love to pretend you know this is a superhero effort building a business and you know <laughs> and getting to go but it wasn't i mean it was really it wasn't it was stumbling step at the time awkwardly into the unknown and seeing what i find uh-huh. that's kind of and, and there's there's a there's a, a, a there is a, a longer strategic plan but as we all know like strategic plans are just guesses about what you think you're going to be able to do and you pursue them until you realize oh this isn't feasible now let's adjust the plan and, and go somewhere else um And if I hadn't had my wife there that night, it it is very possible I would have completely aborted and moved on to something uh, different. And boy, what a shame that would have been, uh, uh, you know, in terms of of my own experience and and in terms of enacting the body of work that I've been blessed to be able to to build now.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny because I was thinking, I was like, I guess, you know, the whole purpose of me not getting to have my event was that it would give me free, free me up to write a book. And, you know, as you were talking about the people in our lives who, who kind of uh, you know, give us that kick in the ass that we need. Uh, I couldn't help but think of a moment, uh, sometime in November, you know, I had asked, uh, Brian Cohn, who's now my business partner and CEO of unmistakable to join me. And, you know, I asked him, you know, what his concerns were. And I asked him what he thinks the biggest challenges are. And I asked him, what, what do you think our biggest liability is right now? And, you know, we're watching the sunset on top of a hill in our friend's neighborhood in San Diego. And he said, right now you're the biggest liability. Wow. And that was the most honest thing he's ever said to me. Wow. And, you know, I mean, and I needed to hear that, you know, and it was as tough as it was. It was like, yeah, that's true. I'm kind of a train wreck right now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly the kind of truth that we need. And you know what? If if people never say things to you that sting you or hurt you, then you have to really question whether they really care about you, whether they really love you, you know, because if people love you, they're going to say what needs to be said to you, even when they know that you don't want to hear it. Um, it's, it's the people who only say things to you that make you feel good all the time that you have to question, you know, um, if somebody really cares about you, then that means they really care about whether or not you are reaching your potential, whether or not you are achieving the things that matter to you. And that means that they're going to say things to you sometimes that are going to, that are going to sting you, that are going to hurt you. Um, and you need to be ready to receive that. You know, I always tell people, um, I was kind of joking about this. I spoke in Houston, Texas, to a, to a group a couple of days ago, and I said, "You know what? You need to do. We need to put our guns on the table." You know, and and I was like, "Literally, you know, we're in Texas, and literally, please put your guns on the table." You know? But but what what we need to do is we need to put our guns on the table when somebody says something to us we don't like, because yeah. for many of us, the first thing that happens when somebody says something that stings us is the guns come out pow, pow, and we get defensive and we start fighting back. Right. And that's the worst possible thing we can do because what's going to happen next time they want to speak truth to us and help mm-hmm. us be better. They're not going to do it. They're going to remember last time and they're going to say, okay, well fine. I was saying that cause I cared about you, but honestly now I really don't care if you are successful or not. I really don't because you clearly don't want to hear uncomfortable truth and a part of maturity Strini is putting yourself in a position to receive uncomfortable truth and incorporate that uncomfortable truth into your life. There are people who would like to live, would rather live with perception of invulnerability Uh than test their limits and find that they have some. And the reality is we all have limits. We all have limits. And we need people in our lives to point to those limits and say, hey, here's where you have a lot of capacity, a lot of runway ahead of you. And here's where you're going to go off the rails. And we need people to help us identify those places so that we don't live with this perception of invulnerability where we just kind of make ourselves feel good all the time. But we're not really stepping into our potential. Um, So we, we need that. We need uncomfortable truth. So
1: you know, one of the the lines from the book that stood out to me, um, and I, I have the one se- you know section of the sentence, a fragment of it about the grit to persistently do hard things that have no immediate payoff, trusting that the benefits will come. Yeah, and I remember that line hit me in the face like a crowbar. I was like, yeah. And I'm really interested in why you think certain people have that and why certain people don't. Like, you know, I mean, think about it. Right? We I think we both know this. We've been both at this for, you know, by, by the world, you know, by the standards of the world we live in today, a very long time. Uh, And I think you've probably seen plenty of people who start projects that you don't see after six months. Right. So what is it that you think is that separating factor? And and can that grit be cultivated?
2: I think it could definitely be, be cultivated. Uh, There's no question, but I I think that um, part of it is kind of what we talked about before. It's rooting your work in something that matters to you. I Mm -hmm. can't imagine not In some capacity, engaging in the kind of work I'm doing right now. Now, it may not be in this form. It may be inside of an organization at some point. It may be starting another company at some point. It may be any number of things. But whatever it is, I guarantee you it's going to be rooted in the kind of work I'm doing right now in some capacity because I can't imagine not doing it. And. Um, you know, so for me, it's it's not really a choice. You know, it's it's um, it's it's something that that it, I'm compelled to do. Now that said, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna speak against myself a little bit and say it is a choice. In in truth, it feels like it's not a choice, but it is a choice because at any moment I could choose to ignore that intuition or ignore that that drive, that productive passion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we may have talked about this last time a little bit, but that word passion comes from the root word pati which means to suffer so when we talk about passion i think we sometimes talk about wanting to you know like what we do all day like the tasks of our job i want to i want to have a job where i get to you know sit on the beach and drink margaritas and (laughs) and just blog right or whatever um and and listen i'm not decrying anybody who says that but but i do think that over the course of time if you're only Mission is to structure your life around what gives you that ping of immediate satisfaction. I think that ultimately your life is going to fall flat. I think ultimately you're going to realize that it's, it's kind of shallow structuring your life and squandering your freedom on yourself freedom that's spent on you alone is wasted. Um, Victor Frankl, one of my favorite quotes, he said, the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast should be accompanied by the Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. Right? <laughs> um, meaning that that with freedom, with liberty, comes the responsibility to spend that freedom in, in a manner that it's serving other people. And so uh-huh. that said... I I believe I've been given tremendous freedom and a tremendous sense of productive passion, the willingness to suffer on behalf of an outcome, which is freeing up creatives to do great work and, and helping them overcome those barriers that get in their way. I can't imagine not doing that work. So for me, I do it and I do it every day and I do it consistently. It's not easy. I don't always like doing it. Um, but I can't imagine not doing it because the outcome matters more to me than my temporary satisfaction. So that is all, that all goes back to identity and knowing yourself, understanding the battle lines, understanding what your work is rooted in. And by the way, that doesn't mean you need to go out and find a job that perfectly matches, you know, some, some outcome that you, that you like. Instead, know yourself and start to try to infuse that outcome into your work now, regardless of where you are. Start with where you are. So many people are are jumping from job to job and career to career and path to path because they're looking for the perfect fit. And the reality is most, most of the time, you never find a perfect fit. Most of the time, you make a perfect fit. And the way you do that is by being resourceful and figuring out a way to infuse your authentic voice into whatever you're doing. And over the course of time, you work your way into that. So that was kind of a long end around to your question, yeah. I think. But um, you know, I think that the reason a lot of people quit early, why they give up, is because their objective isn't an outcome. It's not something they're trying to achieve on behalf of others. They're trying to do something that makes them feel good. And the moment that that temporary satisfaction goes away, they jump ship and go look for a different one. And wow. I think that's, that's profoundly sad.
1: Amazing. Um, we got about five more minutes. And what I'd like to do uh, with the remainder of, it, of our time is basically talk a little bit about the practical applications of these concepts that you've talked about. Like, how do we infuse them into our day to day lives and the work that we're doing every day?
2: So, with regard to identity, and and just kind of stem off from what I just what I just uh, shared, you know, I would encourage people, and there are a a bunch of exercises in the book, and a Mm -hmm. bunch of other things that that people can do. But I'll just give one right now that I think would be really helpful, which is identifying what I call the fifty notables. The fifty notables are areas of your life where you have been especially resonant, where other people have really responded to your work, where you have felt especially vested in your work in some capacity, and you felt like you're really on fire. Right? What is that? When have you been most resonant a couple of ways to identify that I'll just give a couple of questions people can ask number one what fills you with compassionate anger what is it that stokes your fire? That, not Now, by the way, not road rage, not I'm mad <laughs> at you because I get, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm not like I've been slighted in some way, so I'm angry. Not selfish anger, compassionate anger. Compassion it means to suffer with, right? Uh-huh. What fills you with compassionate anger that makes you want to step in? It's a great clue to your through line, a great clue to that sense of identity that you can build your work on. A second one is what moves you emotionally. What makes you cry? What makes you filled with overwhelm about the circumstances? You know, when, when are you moved? I'm moved by the stories of underdogs. I am. I love underdog stories. And I get to spend a lot of time working with underdogs. I write for underdogs. I write for people who are trying to do great things, but the world is stacked against them. Like, that's wow. who I write for, right? So that that helps me a, a lot in, in keeping my motivation. So what is that for you? When are you at your best? You know, when what problems are you obsessed with solving you know, what, what is it in your world that that you just can't let go of? You're like a dog with a bone. You know, what are you obsessed with that everybody looks at you and says, Why are you obsessed with that? What is it? What are the problems you're naturally drawn to solving? What gives you great hope is another one. You know, what do you look at? So these are the kinds of questions that we can ask. And again, I give more of them in the book, but just begin to identify some patterns in your life and begin begin asking, how can I infuse more of that in my work? So when I'm writing, my voice when I'm writing is from the perspective of writing to an underdog, I'm not writing to the CEO of a company. I'm not writing to the entrepreneur who's already funded and is, is doing great work. And they're kind of the the top in their industry. Like I'm not writing to those people. I'm writing to the people who are in the trenches, trying to make it happen every single day. They're getting conflicting objectives from every direction. You know, um, nobody believes in them, but they know they've got a great idea. Those are the kinds of people I'm writing to in my work because I'm writing to the underdog typically. Um, so that, that's just, that's one, Thing with regard to identity with regard to vision very simply begin to identify your intended audience for your work mm-hmm. who are you making your work for not a demographic not a psychographic not a group but an individual you know in his book on writing Stephen King talks about his ideal reader and his ideal reader is his wife um, for his for his novels. But he has his wife in mind as he's writing. And as a result, he's able to shape and, and define his work and make it precise and consonant in a way that it will connect with her. So I would encourage you, if you're an artist, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a writer, whatever it is you do, designer, think about one person you're trying to impact with your work and see if you can shape your work for that person so that it's more precise. And then with regard to mastery – develop a set of daily practices you and i were talking offline it was offline or during this interview about the thousand words a day thing yeah um for me that's a that's a practice that's a practice for you i know that if the only time i write srini is when a publisher is giving me an advance to write a book (laughs) i know that it's going to be miserable i'm going to be terrible because i'm going to have to gear up so what does it take for you to stay in game shape what is the set of practice if you're a designer that might mean that you do some spec work Uh, Once a week or twice a week or maybe every day you do something small, you're doing some little kind of spec work that helps you experiment and practice and stay in shape. If you're a writer, you should be writing every day. Even when nobody's paying you, you should be writing. You know, if uh, if you're a leader or a manager of an organization, then you should be generating ideas for your business every single day to stay in game shape. That's what you should be doing. So whatever that is for you, I'd encourage you to to develop a set of daily practices that can help you engage um, and, and stay in a position where you're ready to deliver when it matters most. And as you do these things, again, these highly practical things, your voice begins to develop and you begin to become more compelling and more resonant.
1: Wow. Well, Todd, this has been great. Uh, as as I expected it would be. I mean, every time you have you here, that's like felt with like practical and inspirational <laughs> advice. So I, I expected nothing less. Uh and I want to wrap with my final question, which is how we finish every interview at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes something somebody or something
2: unmistakable? I think the thing that makes somebody unmistakable is the unswerving commitment to stand their ground, to be decisive and to do work that is founded upon true values, not imposed values. And I think that when we do that, I think that we are unmistakable. And I think that that's ultimately how we change the very world around us. Awesome.
1: Well, like I said, this has been incredible. And uh, for everybody listening, uh, we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.